Warning, this is an explicit episode with adult themes and language. Please put your earphones on and listen to this in private. Recently, there have been a lot of cases where members of our community have been affected by abuse. We will cover various aspects of this with expert commentators over several episodes. Unfortunately, Tasnim will not be able to join us for this session. Instead, we will have an expert guest and an anonymous sister who shares her harrowing story. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast is our own and not representative of anybody's or organisation. This topic is triggering, so please be aware of that. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as a medical or mental health advice to treat yourself or others. Please consult your own physician for any diagnosis. For the sake of anonymity and to avoid unintended slander, no names or locations have been mentioned. Our guest name is also an alias. Please note we've kept this conversation as authentic as possible and the intention behind this candid conversation is to bring to light the serious issues that nobody openly talks about. The question to ask ourselves is, what exactly is sexual and spiritual abuse? Nafisa, it's time for our podcast. Can you hurry up? Taz, I'm coming. Jude has the hoover on. You can't stay with me. You have to go to bed now. Yeah. Good night, Good night, baby. Good night, children. Let's play Lego. Sorry? Five minutes. Come on, let's go to You can't stay with me. Yalla. You need to stop playing. I'm Nafisa. And I'm Tasneem. Grab a cup of tea or coffee and some snacks and join us for a chat after hours. Just two Muslim mums kicking back, having fun. And talking about life, relationships, family, motherhood and more. Welcome to the madness that is our lives. Salams and welcome to Not Another Mum Pod. Today's episode kickstarts the first part of our series on abuse, in particular sexual and spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse is not a new phenomenon. Now with social media spreading news faster and people being generally more aware of it, it's now recognised as a growing problem in our community. Spiritual abuse covers vast grounds such as misuse of charity funds, a family member using religion to manipulate and control others' rights, Sister Uzma today will be joining us to share how a renowned member of the Muslim community took advantage of her and with the help of a trained counsellor specialising in sexual abuse and cults, will explore how we can protect our loved ones from this happening to them. Slarakum and welcome Sister Ramzia. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. We're really pleased to have you here today. Just to introduce uh, you a little bit, Ramzia is a senior counsellor qualified in therapeutic counselling and works with a faith and culturally sensitive Islamic counselling model. You currently work with refugee, migrant and asylum seekers in northwest London, providing counselling in Farsi, Dari and English. That's amazing. Do you know, I understand Farsi a little bit. But oh, really? Not, yeah, my dad made me. <laughs> um, only poems, though. Great. So, uh, That's even you're, harder. <laughs> you're also qualified in post-cult counselling and you've got experience working with anxiety, depression, relational trauma, child sexual abuse, domestic abuse, psychopathic and narcissistic abuse, spiritual abuse, as well as a special interest in radicalization. That's amazing. You know what, um, Ramzia, you sound like you have such a wealth of knowledge, mashallah, and I'm sure you've come across all sorts of cases and stories. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you do? And more specifically, for our listeners, what exactly is spiritual abuse? I gave a very brief intro. Can you just define that for us? 
Yeah, so um, spiritual abuse is really a cohesion and control of one individual by another in a spiritual or a religious context. And this is often experienced as a really deeply emotional personal attack because it's so intimate. Um, and it can look like things like, for example, ridiculing and insulting the other person's religious or spiritual belief, uh, preventing somebody from practicing their beliefs, using religious or spiritual beliefs to manipulate or shame the other person, or as well using religious texts or beliefs to actually minimize or rationalize abusive behavior, such as, you know, physical, uh, financial, emotional, sexual abuse, and even, you know, sort of, um, I think we're coming across more marital rape as well. You're covering such a varied amount of abuse, um, and it goes across the spectrum. We are doing a series of episodes covering spiritual abuse in various forms. We will be covering influencer abuse, charity abuse, and, and so forth. But can you just let us know today, what is the difference between sexual abuse and spiritual sexual abuse? Because today's case, Ozma will share her story about how she was sexually abused by a figure of authority. So generally, when you are being abused, it's always someone of authority, whether it's an authority in the community, but it might be an authority in the family or an authority, um, you know, within that circle or environment. What's the difference between the two, Ramzia? Um, I, I don't really see much of a difference. I think in this context, religion is actually specifically used. So maybe the ayahs of the Quran are used. Um, to actually rationalize this behavior. I, I mean, I think the act is the same. It's just the authority and where this authority is sort of um, validated from is perhaps yeah. different. Okay, we'll find that out as the um, story unfolds. More than uh, anything, Ramsey, if you could listen to her story and then give that insight from a professional opinion in terms of what's going on and what had happened to her. She's a strong sister. She's come through it. She's well on her way to healing, as you will see. But at the same time, I think she could do with a bit of closure, if you like, in terms of rationalizing and making sense of what has happened to her. It has been quite some time, but inshallah, I think um, you'll really help her. We'll try that, inshallah. Asalaamu Alaikum, Sister Uzma. We just wanted to uh, welcome you to the episode and just thank you for being here and for sharing your story with us. Can you start off by telling us a bit about your background, such as uh, the context about this figure of the community that has affected your life so much? I know we're not going to be naming him, but what had he achieved in his lifetime? Why was he so well respected in the community at that time and how did people treat him? He was an imam of a mosque. We didn't know him very well before. He was in a relationship to me, but mm -hmm. we didn't know him so well. But circumstances happened. We just met. We had to come and live with him. And he was an mm -hmm. imam of the mosque. Everybody treated him so well. They always came up to him for advice, anything to do with either religious advice or even whatever was going on in their personal life. So he was very highly respected person in our community. In terms of your family relation, how did your family treat him? You know, what did they expect of him? How did they treat him? Well, um, because we wanted to get to know him better, we, as I said, that we didn't really have that much contact before. They treated him with respect, obviously, because mm. everybody else treated him with respect in the community. So they did as well. And we were always told to respect him because he was our elder and yeah. it's fine. In terms of when the abuse started, where were you at your point of life? How old were you? What was your home life like at that time? 
Well, the home life was quite stressful because there was lots of things, family issues going on. However, our circumstances weren't great. So we were forced to live with him. We didn't have any other choice. We started to live with him when I was around 11. But the abuse started when I was about 12 and a half or 13. So it was around that mark. Were there any markers, any signs that something was going to happen? How was he with you all generally, verbally, emotionally? What was the relationship like? Not great. To start off, he was really nice to us. But then it went to somewhere between like he was showing signs that he didn't want us there. Although we were there for him, not for our own selves, but we were living with him for his own good and to help him out with something. So it wasn't great. He started to show that he doesn't want want us there anymore. And that's what made everything really hard at that time. So would you say that the abuse happened around that time when the relationship sort of, there was a rupture in the relationship or, or did it start sort of when the relationship was actually going good and everything was okay? No, it started after the relationship started go downhill. Do you think it was a form of punishment, Ramzia, where he was taking his frustrations on a I mean, it can be. Young person. It can be. Um, it can be that this person may have taken the anger and the frustration inside, so it becomes quite a, a passive-aggressive way of dealing with things. And I'm sure uh, Uzma's parents did have that, but it seems like they had other stuff on their plate as well, which Sometimes as parents, that can be quite heavy on us. Uzma, do you want to tell us, just from what you remember, the days leading up to the event, the first time, what happened? In your own words, we're just going to sit back and listen to you and, well, speak if we need to. Um, I remember at first, because we had a long corridor in the house, so I remember to get to, from our rooms to the kitchen, there was a space there where he could hide, but... Every time I used to pass him, he used to try and grab me. So I thought because it was just because I was a child, he was trying to scare me or stuff like this. But but then it became more like he would literally hug me so tight. And at that time, I didn't really notice that it was something really bad. But I did find it really annoying because I'm going to do something over there in that area. And he's just interrupting, basically. But then it started to get a bit more like, longer hugs he wouldn't let me go but then it started to go where I didn't like him touching me that started I didn't like him touching me he used to sometimes turn me around or sometimes try and force a kiss and I wasn't used to kissing that person to be honest that was not we didn't have a relationship like this but then it came to a point where it was just that he wouldn't let me go and I had to really struggle to free myself to get out of his hold or his hug or whatever he was doing And I felt that it was wrong, although I didn't process it that much at that time, but I felt that it was wrong. Do you know what? It's triggering for me. Um, Just listening to you, I I can almost feel like it's happening to me. I feel like I I know exactly what you went through at that moment. Did this happen ever in front of your family members or in front of other people? Did he do this in public or was it just when you're on your own? Um, No, it was just whenever I I was on my own. And and I was going to ask the same question. So usually these sort of things happen in isolation. And sometimes that isolation is actually induced for that purpose. So that, you know, abuse usually doesn't uh, succeed in sort of uh, open environments. It usually is ripe when the person is isolated. You're saying that most of the abuse happens in isolation. And even with me, I mean, mine was minor in the sense that I managed to get away from it all. 
But, you know, the initial coercion was very similar to this. They did do it in front of other people. And I feel like it was sometimes done to normalize that behavior or they just wanted to show that it's okay. You know, I'm not doing anything wrong. I, I mean, I was only young as well. So, you know, could that also be common? Definitely. Because I have heard that. Definitely. That's one of the trusting tactics. It's like when somebody wants you to trust them. They won't always go around telling you all the good things. They would actually also as well throw in something that might surprise you. And it sort of makes you think that they're quite genuine in what they're saying because you wouldn't expect it. Well, well, that's how I felt as well when he started to hug and stuff. So I thought, okay, maybe he's just showing that it's a normal thing because I wasn't used to it. So I didn't think anything of that at that time. But although other people were in the house at that time, but it was just um, he would do it alone when we were alone. And until he started to come into our bedrooms, I used to sleep with my brothers, but he did know that they were not going to wake up because he did it so slyly. So how did it escalate? Obviously, he's hugging you really tightly to the point that you're not able to get him to let go. How did it move on from that? I think he noticed that I was trying to avoid. I used to peek through the doors first to see if he was anywhere around before I left. But then I think he started to notice that. So I remember like after Fajr, everybody used to be asleep. We definitely used to wake up for Fajr. But then after that, he knew that everybody would fall asleep. And he used to come to our bedrooms, uh, although I shared it with my brothers, but he knew that they were fast asleep. And he would come and do whatever he wanted over there. And he knew I couldn't get out of it. Where would I go? If I made a noise, my brothers would wake up. And he always used to point to me, shh. Like, oh, yeah. dear. So... I just didn't know what to do. It's awful to experience that as a child. Yeah, and, and it is. And as an adult as well, I guess. In terms of your behaviour yeah. at that time in your environment, did you start to behave differently towards your mum, towards other people at school, you know, in your environment? No, I didn't. But I remember there was one time in school where I just wanted to cry. It wasn't something emotional. We were shown a video and I just ended up crying really badly. Uh, one of my friends, she was like, what's wrong with you? You're always quite lively. And I was quite friendly with everyone. And I was quite popular in school as well. But she was like, what has happened to you? You're never like this. You're quite strong. And she knew about some of the problems that was happening. She didn't know everything. But because we were still kids, I wouldn't share everything with her. But then I just don't know, there were a couple of episodes where I used to just cry even with my mom and she didn't understand what was wrong with me that it's not something they said or something wasn't said that badly that I felt it <laughs> I felt like crying but I never shared with anyone I knew mm -hmm. that there was sometimes when I used to just break down for no reason and did your mom ever ask you you know did she ever say to you is anything happening what's wrong when she saw and used to burst into tears? Yeah, she did ask me a couple of times, is everything okay in school? Is something going on? In school, you've got, mashallah, you've got lots of friends, so is there something wrong? But I used to say, no, school is perfectly fine, I'm okay. Um, I don't know, I just felt very low today. And she, she did constantly try and help me, considering the other problems that she was going through. But I think it was more like I've, I was trying to hide it because I didn't know how to say it. You didn't have the words. No, I didn't. Because I, I wasn't sure, is this normal or is this wrong? Although it did feel wrong, but I just wasn't sure that shall I say it? Because, you know, he's so respected in the community. And because of our circumstances, I knew that if I said something, she would probably ask my dad that we need to leave from here. But I knew we didn't have anywhere else to go. So it was either being homeless or just letting him do what he was doing. Can I just pick up on that? I think 
when you said that, you know, I'm getting this feeling of almost not having any solutions to this. And he had probably picked up on the vulnerabilities and, and what would actually silence you, which was, you know, not to say something just for the sake of family not being displaced. So usually these sort of perpetrators always look for a vulnerability in the victim to make them silent. My next question was going to be an extension of that. Did he ever tell you what he was doing or threaten you with non-disclosure? Did he say anything to you to keep it a secret? No. I remember when it was happening, if I tried to wriggle out or even if I covered myself with blankets so tightly, I could tell that he was getting angry. And how how could you tell? What was his because body his, language? His gestures, no, yeah, his body language and his gestures would be a lot more stronger. So I was scared that what if he becomes violent in terms of like physically hitting me or something, and I didn't want that. So he just basically scared me not to speak at all. Did he ever talk to you? You know, when he was doing what he was doing, did he ever speak in those times? No, or even afterwards about it or before? No, never. Never. So it was almost as if um, nothing was happening, but everything was yeah. happening. Yeah, that's that. What that's exactly what it was. Because I remember when, even if he spoke to me during the day when everyone was around, he would uh, address me normally like there was nothing going on. Yeah. That's horrible. That's just horrible in some ways. I think that's what makes it very difficult to actually pick up on these things because there's this two-faced sort of personality. Usually what happens with these sort of people when things blow up, nobody actually believes that this person can do this kind of abuse because they didn't see that face. So they usually have two faces. That, that's exactly it, because I remember there was something that was going on and I don't know what happened. My dad must have said something and everybody basically said, no, this can't be true. You guys are lying. It was just my dad just clarified a misconception. And I remember like he used to sit there and give people some religious talks and advise them that you need to do this to make yourself better. You need to be a be- of a better character. You need to, you know, do halal things and all this stuff. And it, I I don't remember, but it sometimes it used to make me just angry. And I didn't realise why I was feeling angry. I don't know. It, it was difficult. I remember that that time exactly that I used to feel angry on his talks, but I didn't understand why I was feeling angry. I suppose it's a hypocrisy, isn't it? That you seeing um, somebody advising something contrary to what they're doing. You know, their action and their beliefs are not sitting in conjunction and alignment to them. Did you notice whilst the abuse was going on, did he behave any differently towards you? He might not have acknowledged what had happened or what was happening, but did he, was he nicer to you in some way? Was he more, um, I don't know, pleasant to be around or did he just continue as he always was? No, he continued as he always was because um, he still carried on with those emotional, verbal abuse, I would say sometimes getting angry at us for no reason, telling us that he doesn't want us living with him kind of things. Using a lot of intimidation. Yeah, it was a lot of intimidation. My parents did try to keep us out of the house whenever possible, but it's not as easy if you're living with that person day and night. And and can I just ask, I mean... um... I know you said that your family was was living with them. It almost feels like you, you know, your family didn't have anywhere else to go. Um, it, it kind of it kind of gives me a sense of indebtedness. There is this indebtedness um, that needs to be repaid by you know being quiet about possibly the abuse and you know the injustices that are going on. I wouldn't say it was exactly that because I think we 
us living there was for more for him rather than us, I would say. So we probably did whatever we could. And he knew that because we were living with him, we gave up everything just to help him out with something. And he knew we didn't have anywhere else to go at that moment. Probably he just took advantage of the situation. We didn't owe him anything. Uh, we didn't feel like we owed him anything. M- maybe he didn't like the fact that you were helping him out and he was vulnerable in that sense. You know, if he had such a huge status in that community where he's established a masjid and he's an imam and all these things, you know, uh, maybe he felt that he was a bit weak in your eyes for being helped out. I don't know. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, in terms of your coping mechanisms, how did you cope? I know you said that you had all these outbursts, but when the abuse was going on, what was going through your mind and how did you cope with with what was happening? Um, All I thought at that time was, this is not, it's wrong and I just don't like it. I don't like it when he does that. But when I was in school, I was a lot happier because I knew I was out of that house and I was a lot calmer. And Inside the house, I used to just try and forget what happened this morning. It was almost daily. I forgot what was happening. I used to say, let's just move on. Let's not do this today. I have better things to do. Let me just go out and, you know, just divert my attention rather than actually acknowledge what was going on. So sort of escaping from the reality of what was happening, you were doing whatever you could to mentally disassociate from that. I think that's that's exactly what it was. In terms of bedtime, as you were heading to your bedroom at night, what were you going through at that time? I just didn't want morning to come. I used to say, okay, please um, let me wake up before he comes. I'll pretend I need to go and use the loo. I would probably go and ask my mum and dad if they needed something. But then I was used to things that they would think that it's weird that I'm coming to them in the middle of the night to ask if they needed anything. Or if I make a noise, what if my brother wakes up? But then I looked at it the other way. What if my brother blames me? Or what if he says, no, this is fine. Why are you making a noise for? So, How old were your brothers? My older brother was a few years older than me. And the younger one was quite young, five years. Wow. You Are you saying your older brother did not know that there was someone coming into the bedroom at all? No, the reason why is because we were staying in his house and we knew that he had some books there that he used to refer to every morning so um yeah my brother was quite a heavy sleeper <laughs> so he's never ever said anything to you if people were to come into my bedroom and this was happening daily there's a high chance he would have woken up one morning and seen something has he ever said if he'd seen anything no all he knows is that he knew that he used to come into the room and grab a book for a while and study it or whatever all right so that's all he'd think it knew because he probably saw him reading a book and then probably fell fell back asleep. So he never noticed anything wrong. Did he have a wife he in had the house? A, he had a wife in the house, yeah. Wow. How did he treat his wife? Yeah, they were okay. Although she she was okay to us as well. She wasn't she used to try and stop him with all these verbal abuse that he used to Yeah. Shut it. Yeah, she did try and do that, like asked him to calm down their only kids. But like she would not force him to stop. She was just say it a couple of times, but yeah. that didn't stop him. But yeah, he did have a wife. And and did he speak to her in that way at any time? No, I've never seen him speaking to her like this. He was quite nice to, well, not exactly nice, but he was quite normal to her. Now that I'm married, that's just yeah, like I am with my husband. That's how he was. Uh, I'm just wondering how long this abuse um, sort of took place. For about, I would say just 
under three years. Can I ask, before we move on to post-abuse time, during the abuse, how far did it go? If it's not too triggering for you, uh, factually, it did was, he do? It was molestation, to be honest, and it was inappropriate touching. It didn't go any further than that, probably because there were people in the house and it, it was happening in inside the house. I was never alone with him outside, so. Okay. But you think, you know, had you been completely alone, and there was a chance he probably would have taken it further. Now that I think back to it sometimes, yeah, I think okay. so. So how did it end? Like, what happened? Um, he got really ill and his condition turned quite bad. It deteriorated within a couple of months and that's when it stopped. First of all, because he was too busy with his hospital appointments most of the time or he was admitted into the hospital. We never knew what was going on until quite later and... Um, I saw him in a lot of pain, so he was physically unable to do it. When he was first diagnosed, did he still continue it for a while or was he completely incapable and then he stopped? I mean, did it just peter out or it was just overnight stop? It was just an overnight stop. I, I realised, because I remember he was ill that day when I woke up, I heard his wife saying that, oh, he's not too well today. And I was like, OK, that's probably why he didn't come into the room today. And uh, but then from then on, it stopped because he did, as I said, he deteriorated quite fast. How did you feel when he didn't come that first morning? I felt really happy. Yeah, I, got, I felt really relieved that I wasn't, I don't, at that same time, I was scared as well that he could continue the next day. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And then when it didn't? When it didn't, I was relieved. I was like, okay, thank God that at least I didn't have to speak out and I didn't have to say anything to anyone and embarrass myself, it stopped. So did you feel like at one point you would speak out because you had that thought? No. Can I just ask, did he ever use religion or elements of Islam to justify these actions? I know he was an imam and he taught, you know, all of this, but did he ever use it to justify what he's doing to you? The only time I remember once was I just said that it seems wrong. You but, said it? Yeah, I said it. And that was just the one time. And all he said was, no, it's not. And nobody would believe you if he said something. That was the only time he said that. Because he's such a wonderful man in society. So why would they believe you? Yeah. And that kind of helped him back as well. I, I know that how much people loved him and how many people knew him. And I saw it with my own eyes, that how much they respected him. So obviously he would believe a child over someone so respected yeah that's very sad it's really sad um especially as a child you're going through this and you think you're completely alone you know and you don't have anybody um even though you seem like you've got a great relationship with your mum and you had a good relationship with her and she was doing all the right things you know I, i'm just looking at it as if what if it was my daughter I, and she has these outbursts that i don't know where it's coming from ramsey what can we as parents do at this stage when we're seeing a child emotional but without any any obvious signs, you know, how would we ever be able to get them to open up if they're going through something like this? Um, I think personally, I feel that the antidote to something like abuse, I mean, if there is any, um, is really relationships. Um, and I use sort of in my in my practice, I use relationships to heal uh, or bring bring about some sort of healing. So I think as parents as well, we need to have an open and safe and validating relationship with our kids. And I'm sure uh, Uzma's parents did have that. But it seems like they had other stuff on their plate as well, which sometimes as parents that can be quite heavy on us. Um, so I think um, having sort of a, a, a very open and safe relationship, this induces trust. 
And so when you have trust as a child, you would, you're more likely to actually come towards your parents and, and try to sort of um, uh, understand and um, even talk about this experience. And I think as, as parents, we should especially be wary at difficult times because that just makes our children much more vulnerable. So, you know, living in a, it seems, I mean, from the picture I'm getting, it seems quite an overcrowding, possibly an overcrowding place. I mean, that in itself is quite stress-inducing. Um, so I think at difficult times, just be very much more wary of our kids at that time and, you know, try and open that relationship for them to come when they do, ha when they do sort of uh, experience something difficult as this. What do you say to that, Osma? Because you've come through it as a child, listening to Ramzia put it into words like that. Would you agree? Do you feel that, you know, perhaps if you had trusted your parents a bit more, it would have um, come out sooner? The thing is, I always trusted my parents. We did have mm -hmm. a very open relationship. She always said that if there was something wrong, because uh, from the cultural background we were, we were in a completely new place and we had to give up a lot of things as well. So she knew that we would we are going to go through some difficulties. So she always asked us to be open. But because of the situations that they were going through, it was more me thinking that I do not want to burden them with this. So it wasn't them, although she did try, but because she knew the only place we went to was school or we were at home. So probably her mind didn't even go and in that place. But because it was me thinking, no, they've already got so much on their plate. I just didn't want to add to that stress and making us homeless. That's the main worry that I had. Making us homeless in that situation wasn't my intention. I mean, it seems like you were really trying to protect the family. And this is one of the trauma responses that we usually as children who are actually being abused, they like to do that. They like to um, protect their family from the devastating effects. But you know, the reality is um, you weren't going to be making them homeless. It was the other person's decision that was going to do that. I just had this thought. This person sounds like he's quite intelligent and he's he's got um, some awareness. But do you think that, you know, all the emotional abuse towards your parents and um, telling them to leave and get out, knowing fully well that you had nowhere to go, he may have exaggerated that to an even higher degree, just so that that's his indirect way of telling you, you know, this is the consequence of what will happen if you open your mouth. He didn't have to say that to you explicitly, but implicitly, you know, do you think he probably was doing all of this more so? so that you could hear it. Now that you've yeah. said it, I think why yeah. fit his character. Yeah, it, it sounds like um, sort of inducing phobia into people. And this is what usually happens when, you know, they want to silence, you know, the victim. Yeah. It's usually about, you know, if you do this, this will happen. Um, so that person sort of lives with that phobia for a while. It, it was intimidating when he used to do that. But at that time, I didn't really process it, as as you said, yeah. Mr. Uh, no, I'm just thinking, because he's not stupid, um, and you're saying that the abuse started more or less around these frustrations, and if he was getting something out of it, you know, whatever he was doing is what he wanted, um, he, you know, he didn't speak to you directly about it other than that one time where he told you that it's not wrong what he's doing. Then the other way he could instill this fear, as well as being aggressive with you when you were fighting him, is to show it in this way towards your parents, you know, and manipulate that situation. That's what it sounds like to me. Wow. <laughs> you know, you were in a new country 
I think usually these sort of things flare up at these times because, again, it's about the vulnerabilities. If the person is, for example, going through a breakup, if they're going through a divorce, if they're going through, you know, separation of, you know, for example, parents, if they're moving to another country, they've moved to another school, that makes the person much more vulnerable to these sort of states. And they're looking much more for, you know, some sort of meaning, some sort of solution. Um, and they usually get tangled with these things. But I think, you know, one other reason that I think was happening was because I hit puberty around that time. So I don't know, it was my body changing that triggered it for him. I don't know. I'm going to pick up on this. As you as you were going through puberty at that time, um, did you feel attraction to other boys around that time? And if so, how did you process what he was doing to you and, and coping with what you were feeling and what your body was feeling? I don't remember being attracted to other boys, especially not in my mm. school. Yeah. As you know, what teenage boys are like. But sure, sure. I remember that I always hated being around um, those who were really noisy. I used to work with them. That's not a problem because obviously I went to mixed mm. school. But the thing is, um, it wasn't, as I said, that because I had lots going into my plate, I was trying to divert my attention and I was quite active in lots of different activities in school. So probably I just didn't have time to think about these kind of things. That's good. It's great that you had that coping mechanism because I know for some others they have different strategies um Ramsia could you explain what other coping strategies you've encountered with other cases I mean I think the usual and most prominent one is this escaping from the reality of things um you know there's a state where they go into this dissociation sometimes they lose touch with themselves they become quite numb to a lot of things um they're not able to feel things um you know, um, problems with trusting people. These are all trauma responses that are brought about by such kind of abuses. Actually, I was just going to say, Ramzia, earlier you mentioned that when a family is going through a difficult time or a complicated time, it's more important around that time to focus on your children and to ensure that they're okay because they're open to becoming more vulnerable, if you like. And that's not something I've actually ever thought about, you know, I thought, it's easy for parents to get distracted with their problems, whether it's work problems or family problems. And, and I think at the, that's the time where maybe they mostly neglect their children. Yeah. So thank you for that. And it's something I'll bear in mind. What tends to happen is that these abusers, they tend to um, fill that space that is lacking from their parents at that time. So they, they provide the unconditional love. They provide the unconditional sort of attention for the child, which is what the child is lacking from their parents. And possibly the parents are sort of involved somewhere else. Okay, thank you for that. I think that's something that would be really helpful for our listeners, especially a good reminder for us. Um, Uzma, just going back to this relationship with this figure, talk to me when he was dying, you know, what happened around that time and how did it come about? And then you can perhaps let Ramzia and the audience know who he was. I remember that uh, when he was dying, lots of people used to come and see him because they knew that he wasn't well and everything. And do you know what I expected from him was an apology, not for myself, but the way he treated all my family and not just me. And I actually wanted an apology, but he kind of ignored us. He didn't acknowledge the fact that an apology might be enough. And we weren't looking for anything else. And as you can imagine, the way he was with my family, he didn't really mm -hmm. leave anything for us in the field. Previously, you mentioned to me in, in a pre-call that you prayed for him. So can you talk a bit about that? 
in terms of when he was going through that excruciating pain and how that made you feel? Yeah, I, to be honest, do you know how some people might say that, no, you deserve it? Yeah. I didn't think like that. I didn't, the amount of pain he was in, I wanted it to, I just wanted it to be easy for him. And I didn't want him to be in so much pain because he was hard. I've always been sensitive, especially to pain, other people going suffering. I've always been sensitive to it. So I didn't want him to go through it. And not even for a second did it cross my mind that, oh, he deserves it. Now that I think of it, and I believe in that, that some people do suffer in this dunya before they die for what they've done. So I think now thinking back to it, this is what happened to him. And not even once did he apologise. Maybe if he did, he might have felt better. Do you think it's because he actually didn't feel that he did anything wrong? Because the sort of personalities that these people have, um, they're quite entitled. They're quite um, self-centred and entitled people who who feel that they, you know, whatever they've done, there's nothing wrong with it. Do you think that was part of his personality that came through? Uh, I think it was. I think, yeah. I, I can't imagine anyone abusing to that level and not knowing that, that it was wrong. And the fact that he actually told you it wasn't wrong um, goes to show that perhaps uh, what you said, Ramsia, was true. I mean, they, they tend to just believe themselves, really. But um, there comes a point uh, for certain sort of people with these sort of personality types, there comes a point if they allow themselves to actually feel. Because if they allow themselves to feel, you know, all the oppression that they've done, they will collapse. So, you know, in order not to collapse, they just try to ignore the fact that, you know, it, it is wrong. So they, they deny it. That's, it's a survival thing for them as well. Uzma, when he was going through that pain and you were praying for him because you were sensitive to his pain, um, and now as an adult, looking back on it, do you feel like that was justice enough for you? No. Yeah. No, I wouldn't because what happened to me after, in my adulthood, yeah, I think... It was too much. It was too much, yeah. So... Um, do you want to talk about who he was and the dynamic of that relationship? He was my grandfather and he was a mehrim to me. That sends shivers down my spine, to be honest. I'm going to stay silent here because when I heard the summary of, you know, obviously today we're going in deep and we're actually getting to know what happened. But when um, Usma told me the summary of it and, and she told me towards the end of the conversation who he was, I almost, you know, I wanted to cry and it stayed with me the whole night so I can't imagine for Uzma how she begins to deal with not just the abuse but the fact that it was her own grandfather who did this to her. And I think one of the reasons that probably my parents would have never gotten there or even guessed it because they thought that they were leaving us with someone who was a merim to me and someone who would actually protect me rather than hurt me. I mean, it, it sort of helps me to connect the dots now because usually these sort of things, there's always a power dynamic that is played and created which allows the abuse to become successful. But trust is actually the currency by which everything is played in all of these abuses, including spiritual abuse. And this trust, there was no sort of effort to be done. The trust was always there. So it, it kind of um, drops the penny for me. I was, I was waiting for that time to, t- you know, for that moment for you to tell me, you know, when the trust was built up. But there was no need to build that trust because that trust was always there. It was effortless. It was on effortless, his part. yeah. Unpack this, um, Ramzia. I think um, one of the most important things that we as a community don't actually... Um, concentrate on, if I could say, is the building of boundaries. Um, In Islamic terms as well, I mean, in Islam we have boundaries. 
um, we have Sharia that has boundaries as well. And so I think as as parents, we should be able to allow our kids to understand what boundaries are. Mahram or na mahram, you know, what are boundaries? Boundaries are taking, you know, correct responsibility for our own actions and feelings and allowing and holding other people to do the same. So, you know, even if it is your mahram grandfather, if he touches you in an inappropriate place, a child is able to understand that this is wrong and where to draw the boundaries. So I think boundaries are really, really sort of central to actually um, allowing our kids to stay safe inside the house and also outside as well. Osma, how are you doing? Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. It's actually... I'm so sorry. No, no, you're going... it's okay because I think that's... I've healed enough to come and talk about it now because I yeah. want it to help others. I want to use my experience to actually make it safer for everyone else well i can do my part this is a very small part but I, inshallah i think it will probably help other mums actually look out for signs and not just mums just any sisters it who is... are listening and going through it and right now hopefully your strength will give them strength to you know not tolerate it anymore and to speak up because they can witness what has happened to you and how you've come through it. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, and, and Osma, if you need time out, just tell us to stop when you need time out. You know, I know it's triggering for you and it's, you're reliving it. And so our listeners, we're all going through it with you. But obviously, it's your story. I wanted to ask, did your mum or your dad, did they ever talk to you about boundaries and about, um, you know, about inappropriate touching or anything like that? Were they Def um, definitely? Yeah, they were. Oh. Because I remember my mum used to speak to me about these things, even if before I hit puberty, to explain that, you know, there are boundaries when you're growing up. There are places that people are not supposed to touch you. And I remember, although I was very close to my brothers and my dad, but we didn't really have a lot of hugging or like sitting right next to each other and all this stuff kind of thing do you know we were although we were really friendly with each other I would sit next to them but it wasn't there was still a boundary so my mom always explained to me that whether they are real mehrim there is still it's supposed to be a boundary between you and your male member of family and so obviously she did her part well she did it that's why when I said it felt wrong it's because I wasn't used to it not even with my own hugging my father or my brothers like this mm -hmm. I always used like to hug, any touch yeah any touch because I always mm -hmm. remembered I always hugged my brother from the side rather than from the front front yeah so. and what about sort of holding people responsible when it is sort of making you uncomfortable because I think a lot of the times we don't allow our children to actually question those um whereas you know a child or, or anybody should be able to say well no, I think one of the things that I wanted to highlight is also as well a correct stance on authority because it seems like your grandfather was the authority figure of your family. And so what tends to happen within our culture and within you know, our system is that, you know, we are sort of um, told implicitly sometimes and non-verbally that authority needs to be respected, which is fine and well, and we need that in society. But, you know, we need to be able to also as well exercise our own autonomy that Allah has given us so you know bringing a balance between these two is really good so how many of our children probably you know if they're sort of held by the police outside how many are able to actually question the police and say why are you holding me challenging authority is good and healthy I'm not saying you know run a riot but actually yeah. challenging yeah. yeah I understand what you're saying now I think 
but I mm-hmm. probably wouldn't have understood because, you know, at that time there was no social media. I think it was lack of awareness around that time. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what's happened. Otherwise, if I don't know if I would have ever reported him, but I would have challenged him in some way if I was more aware of what was happening to me at that time. Just to come back to it, when you said that your mum told you about boundaries and what felt wrong and you felt that it was wrong when he was touching you at any point. Um, but you also know that he crossed those boundaries because your mum had told you already in terms of what are the boundaries and where people are not allowed to touch you. And when that man um, broke those boundaries and touched you in those places, did you not feel then that I must tell my mum or was it still those reasons for not telling in the first place at the forefront of your mind? I remember about a couple of weeks into it, I remember that I was like, should I speak to someone about it? But then... I knew deep down that nobody would believe me, not my mother or, or father, because I didn't want to upset them any more than they were already in that house. And uh, I knew things were difficult because when he used to have his outbursts, my grandfather, my dad and my mom used to remove us from that situation and take us out uh, or somewhere and not come back until very late at night. So she always used to say that if I had any other choice, I would put my th- children through this. And every time I used to remember and replace those words, that if she had a choice, we wouldn't be here in the first place. So it's more like that's what was playing in the back of my head that, no, I can't tell her because they don't have a choice. We would be homeless, basically. Whatever your mum was saying, without thinking the impact of her words at the time, she was just telling you like it is. It was, in fact, something that you took on as your own responsibility. And what was happening to you, you just sort of parked it and allowed it to continue mainly because you didn't want to face the consequences that your mum was afraid of yeah and this is something that no child should ever go through because saving a family is not a child's responsibility it is not a child's responsibility but I think now that we're more aware like we know that there are proper channels we wouldn't have been homeless because we had other channels they would have helped us but Mm -hmm. I didn't know of them at that time so As a child, you wouldn't. No. I mean, you were completely engrossed in this phobia that you had, uh, which is very normal, I think. You did what a child, you know, usually does, which is to protect themselves and Mm. their loved ones. Ramzia, what do we do then? I mean, this could happen to any one of us and our children. So... How do we get our children to understand? We we will teach them everything. We'll tell them, you know, about boundaries and the no pants rules and all of the other ways of talking about it. Sex education plays a part and all of that. How do we get them to actually take it on board? Because from what I'm hearing from other people as well, children are still not telling. They're being found out. People find out or they grow up and they talk. But why are children still not speaking up or telling somebody? I mean, I think the reality of trauma-based abuse mm-hmm. is this. Trauma is, you know, if something is traumatizing when you feel alone in it. That's the experience that you have. You feel that, you know, you're, you feel powerless. Um, you feel scared. You feel, um, you know, that there is no way of getting out of this. That is a trauma-based abuse that happens. So I think... I mean, unfortunately, you know, we can do everything that we can, but these abuses, these perpetrators and and the system of abuse is such that it will change itself to abuse that person. So you can have, you know, a really stable family with a really good sort of upbringing. You could do everything right, but it's the outside world that the abuser will usually change its 
stance to abuse that person. I mean, we always want an answer. We always want a way out. Yeah. But, but there is, but there is no way out, to be honest. I think it's just doing everything that we can. Does that, is that quite disappointing? I don't know. As a mum, I'm just sitting here thinking... Because I have a daughter who has a very quiet personality and she always avoids confrontation at any cost. And I always feel for her because of her personality and I always think if something was to happen to her, she would be so frightened, she would be completely silent in it. Like she would cry, tears would run, but she'd be completely silent. And although I'm talking to her all the time and although I've you know, got this open relationship with her, if she felt like Uzma, where she had to protect her family and, you know, I don't know if she would ever come to me with this. But I just feel scared about that. The fact that I'm actually helpless other than dua to Allah to protect them and do our daily adhkars, you know, I don't know what else to do. Uzma, I'm so sorry. We'll take some no, no, time. No, that's I'm absolutely so fine. How are you feeling when you're are you hearing okay? this? Yeah, I'm okay, but I'm just thinking back to, because of my profession, I don't want to disclose what it is, but yeah. we have been trained to pick on signs of children. Now the teachers are more aware, and especially in school, they are more able to pick on signs when a child is distressed. And sometimes if a child doesn't speak to the parents, they might feel easier to speak to their children. So even I think probably telling your children that if there's something is wrong, in school or even at home and you think that you can't speak to your parents, speak to your teachers about it. Yeah, They might be help you. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I think what you said, Osma, is really important, you know, picking up signs as parents as well. So there is this, um, it's called the bite model that usually is used for uh, indoctrination or some sort of abuse. And so if you see any of these signs, for example, you know, your child is... Um, is much more reserved, is your child is emotionally reserved, your child is thinking differently, your child is, you know, much more quiet. Um, there are signs that you can pick up that allow you to understand perhaps if the child is going through some distress, definitely. But also as well, I was going to say, you know, critical thinking. I think this is something that is usually suppressed in our community as well. We don't allow our children's curiosity to grow. So if our children sort of have questions we tend to you know ask them not to ask those questions because somehow those questions are inappropriate but we should be able to allow them to question and reflect because that actually strengthens their thinking muscle then it helps them when it is attempted to be you know shut down then those children who have had this muscle sort of strengthened in their childhood they usually are able to get out you know uh, a lot more than those who don't because they sort of submit almost yeah. um, to that abuse. That is so, so uh, valuable, Ramsey. Thank you for that. I think it's so common for us to easily say to our children, okay, I don't know why you're asking that. That doesn't make sense. Or, you know, and uh, shutting them down without really knowing that we're shutting them down. I think it's really important. And something else you'd mentioned earlier, I picked up on where you said that as parents, and especially in our South Asian culture, we have to have an attitude of respect towards elders. Um, and that respect can manifest in various ways. You know, sometimes you have to give salam, no matter what, you must give salam, or you must hold their hands or hug them or shake hands. And then when your child isn't wanting to, we force it, we say, no, you must hug, it's your XYZ, you know, we justify it by doing that. How do we manage that without becoming rude or without teaching our children that it's antisocial? You know, what can we do to support them and their boundaries as well as hold up to our 
standards of adab, manners? I think at the core of things, we need to be able to allow our children to have autonomy and choose what they want. I think there's this tendency that if a child does X, Y and Z, they're bad. And if a child does Y, Z and A, you know, they're good. We tend to label, you know, children as good and bad. Whereas if a child is not doing something, there is usually a reason behind it. And they're not malicious. They're not evil. There is usually a reason behind it. So not labeling actions as good or bad. I think usually it helps. And just allowing them, sometimes it feels like, you know, our religion has given us so much autonomy. As soon as, you know, we are born, we have this horia, you know, that Allah has given us. But we as as parents sometimes take over that and almost act as if the children are our possessions and they need yeah. to, you know, they're an extension of us. That's absolutely true. That's what I was thinking as well, that sometimes we as parents say we shut the children down when they're curious about something. And I think we shouldn't do that. If a child comes to you, say, that's for everyone out there. If a child comes to you or anyone comes to you and say, okay, that didn't feel right. I think that was wrong. Do not ever try and justify it. Because if it felt wrong to them, it probably was. You can't just say, oh, maybe that wasn't the intention. I think probably we can't just say, oh, no, maybe that person was not trying to do this or he didn't mean to say that. No, if it was wrong or it felt wrong to them, that means that there, it was something wrong in there. There was wrong intention in there. Yeah. So I think we just need to be really open-minded for yeah. our children. And that's exactly what these abuses uh, in, in these sort of circumstances do. They help you to thought stop yourself. So whenever a thought comes through, which is, you know, even a doubt or a thought about, you know, X, Y, and Z, they help you the practices where they actually suppress these so that you don't actually go forward with these thoughts. Because if you do, then there might, you know, be a rupture and, you know, there might be a sort of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, this doesn't feel good. Perhaps it's not actually good. You know, perhaps this is not right. So they're taught to suppress. It's called thought stopping. Okay, thank you for that. Was there anything else before we move on to your marriage? No, just like a sister, Ramsia. Okay. You're welcome. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for that, Ramsia, because that was really insightful. This episode will be continued in part two. Watch out for it by subscribing to us and following us on Insta at NotAnotherMumPod. How did your husband react to what was happening? Did he think, oh, we're newlyweds, you're being shy? Or did he figure out I think, something was wrong? Yeah, he did figure out something was wrong. Obviously, I think you can imagine what happened after I got married. Yeah, what happened? Tell us. It, when the intimacy started, it's not that I stopped my husband, but I think he felt it as well that I was kind of disconnected and I wanted to cry. I think what you're describing is possibly the most traumatic of those memories because, you know, it, you just felt that it was going to be the worst of them all. So probably more trauma-inducing. That was the one thing I used to keep coming back to. Not doing it on purpose, but unintentionally, I used to come back to that moment. I think that if I didn't remove myself from that place at that time, I just felt that it, something worse was going to happen. It wasn't just going to be touch. You've been listening to Nafisa and Tasneem. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our show. Don't forget to subscribe, share and review. Follow us on Insta and Facebook at NotAnotherMumPod as well as on Twitter, mum underscore pod. You can also listen to all our pods on www.notanothermumpod.com as well as on all your favourite podcast platforms. Should we go to bed now? <laughs> really?
I can't cuddle you. I can't fit in your bed. Yes, stay away forever. Good night, children. Say Allahumma. Allahumma. Bismika. Amutu. Wahia. Wahia. Allahumma. Bismika. Amutu. Wahia.